Amen. If you would turn your Bibles to the Psalms and to Psalm 16, which you can find on page 535 of the Pew Bible, if you'd like to use that. Psalm 16, page 535. There are a few Psalms that are written by priests in our Psalter. Uh, You may have noticed that if you've worked your way through it before. But, of course, the vast majority and so many of the ones that are memorable to us and especially memorable to us were written by David. And I don't know if you've given that much thought, but it's quite fascinating, isn't it, that God chose David to, to write so many of these songs. But at another level, it really makes sense the more you think about it, because David's life was so remarkably difficult. Uh, his life contained an incredibly high amount of what we today would call trauma. Uh, You think about being, starting his life as the eighth son, being sent out into the wilderness where we know that at night or during the day he encountered large animals, fierce animals. If you've ever had anything like that experience, being in the woods and coming upon an animal that can tear you apart, it is a bit of a shocking experience. He fought animals. He slept under the stars. He joined a king's household, and he became very close with the king's son, and he married the king's daughter. And yet all that was ripped away from him. His friend was killed as part of God's judgment against that family. His wife for a while was taken from him. He then lived as a refugee for an extended period of time, sleeping again out and under the stars, trusting God each day that he would live and wake up one more day. He had to live with the Philistines for a while. He had to go to his enemies to find uh, some kind of refuge. He eventually uh, becomes king, but he's king of a relatively small nation, surrounded by much larger, more powerful nations, and he has to win battles really sheerly through the power of the Holy Spirit in situations where he should be dead. And, of course, the thing we probably most know him for the battle with Goliath. You know, we tend to Sunday school that up a little bit, but what was it like? What was the fear like to go up against someone like that and know that only one of you could live from this encounter? No matter what your faith was, these were traumatic and difficult settings. And all through this, people were trying to assassinate him, assassinate members of his family. He had debates and struggles within his family. He eventually had to run from his own son. Absalom, who tried to murder him. He had a life that was amazingly rich in trauma, amazingly rich in stress, and incredibly full of violence. Lots and lots of very graphic, up close, not talking about using drones and missiles, right? We're talking about beating another man to death with a relatively blunt object. And isn't it interesting that God chose such a man to write so many of the Psalms? And I hope that when you read them, when you sing them, you'll remember that a little bit. That when he talks about, as he does at the beginning of 16, preserve me, O God. Save me. These aren't uh, the words of a priest who maybe has grown up his whole life in the cloister of the priesthood, in the quiet life of the priest with his books and parchments and worship but a man whose life was in danger almost constantly and had uh, amazing amounts of trauma and fear in his day-to-day life. 
We said a couple weeks back when we looked at Psalm 11 that the Bible's approach to fear, whether it's the fear David felt or the fear that we struggle with, the anxiety, uh, can be summed up this way. And these words were originally those of David Pallison, and I don't think they can be approved, improved in any way. Um, David would say, the Bible's approach to fear is this. You have good reasons to be afraid. You do. The Bible acknowledges it. But you have better reasons not to be. And Psalm 11 sketched just very briefly, in a very broad way, very quickly, a few reasons not to be afraid. I think Psalm 16 needs to be studied with Psalm 11. I know I'm not alone in that um, observation. Because here we're given four anchors for the soul in times of anxiety. Four anchors, uh, four better reasons to battle with when we're dealing with anxiety, stress, fear, and just the difficulties of living in a broken world. So that's what we'll be looking at tonight in God's Word. I invite you to stand, as is our custom, as we read God's Word. And I'll be reading to you uh, Psalm 16, once again, the whole of the psalm. And the begins by reminding us this is a mictum, a, probably a musical term, told the, the Nancy Costas of the world how to play it. A mictum of David. Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. The sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their names on my lips. The Lord, or Yahweh, is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel in the night. Also, my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. This is God's word. Let's pray and ask his blessing on it. Father, we do come now to you and to the one seated at your right hand, in whom all the pleasures of eternity are found in fullness. And we pray that you would open up to us this, his psalm, this psalm that he fulfilled and that he sang and that he completed and that he authored through the Holy Spirit in David's life. Open our hearts to receive it, bring comfort to us in our fear and anxiety, and preserve us, O Lord, against all our enemies within and without. These things, Father, we pray that you might be glorified in us and in the earth and in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. I believe there are at least, probably more than this, but at least four anchors 
for the soul here in this text uh, in this face of anxiety and fear. And let me just say I'm a realist, so I know that uh, you may not remember all four. But what I would ask you to do, and I think this is a good practice in general, is to ask the Lord, even quietly in your heart right now, to maybe direct you to that anchor or those two or three that maybe he especially wants to lay on your heart tonight. Because the, really what we have here is a summary of the main four anchors the Lord gives us, not just in Psalm 16, but all through the Old and New Testaments. And that's part of what makes Psalm 16 so exceptional is that these are the big themes of when we're dealing with anxiety and fear. These are the big anchors, the big ways of sort of mooring ourselves, keeping our balance when we're in times of great distress. So look with me at these four anchors of the soul, these four promises or hopes that we can rest in when we're struggling. The first one, and you find this in verses 1 through 4, is the covenant, the covenant Look at those verses with me again. Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to Yahweh, you are my God or my Lord, and I have no good apart from you. And then he describes his commitment to the Lord. As for the saints in the land, the holy ones, they are the excellent ones. They're the ones I delight in. Meanwhile, the sorrows of those, especially those in the church, who run after another God shall multiply. And so I won't take up their blood offerings and I will not even use their names and the names of their filthy gods will not even appear on my lips. This is the language of the covenant. Now, I know that's a word we use a lot in Presbyterian circles. And, and because we use it a lot, there's, there's sort of two, I think, temptations. One is you get bored with it because you hear it from this pulpit so often, and after a while it just doesn't mean much because you hear it so often. And the other problem, I think, especially for our young people, is that they hear it as some kind of sort of theologically dry concept, you know, something the pastor's excited about because he's a pastor, but really doesn't have much impact on my life. But nothing could be further from the truth when we're talking about the covenant. The covenant is a warm a beautiful, extremely important doctrine throughout Scripture. If I could put covenant into words for you, maybe in a way that, that makes it more lively or opens your ears to hear it afresh, I think the covenant can be summed up in the simple words, He is mine and I am His. He is mine and I am His. Maybe the greatest statement anywhere in the Bible of the covenant comes in Exodus 6, where God says to Moses and the people, I will take you to be my people and I will be your God and you shall know that I am the Lord, your God. You are mine and I am yours. This is an oath-based, vow-based, sealed relationship. We're coming off, of course, our couples retreat and this is something we talked about during that time, that the vows we take in marriage create a safe space to love each other, be faithful to each other, and to raise children because we exist in a covenant. A covenant isn't a dusty legal term. It's, it's warm. It's bright. It's something that we need. We need a defined relationship with God if we're ever going to be at peace. We can't live 
and I know some are doing this. Maybe you've been taught in past churches to do this. Some of us are living in the vagueness of our own emotional responses to God. So when we think about our relationship to God, we look at our heart and say, well, how am I doing today? And then we decide how we are with God. But the covenant reminds us that we rest in promises, in unshakable realities. You know, I might not be loving Christ real well today. I might not be loving my wife and children real well today. But my acceptance before God doesn't rest in that. It rests in oaths and vows made by the Son and the Father on my behalf. That's what the covenant's about. We need a defined relationship in order to be at peace. I've given the illustration before. It's a little embarrassing. I just met my wife, and um, it was clear we were interested in each other. Everybody could see it, I think. But I had not defined the relationship at all. I hadn't really asked her. I think I was in a fog of happiness, and I just hadn't thought through it. And I remember Sarah coming to me. I was in the library studying. I know, very geeky. Um, she finds me in the library, and she sits down. She does just what she should have done as a Christian young woman. She said, Matthew, what's happening here? What are we doing? Let's define this. And she was right to do that, of course. And it, it actually helped me. I needed that in that moment because I was, I was daydreaming in a lot of ways. Well, that is how God is with us. He does not leave us out in sort of a nebulous world of our own emotions, but rather he gives himself to us. And he says, I am yours and you are mine. It's very much a marriage ceremony. It's very covenantal and it's very peaceful, especially when you're going through incredibly difficult times. In studying for this sermon, I, I happened upon some writings of John Flavel. Flavel was a Puritan. I think he's my father's favorite Puritan. Maybe you've heard about him on occasion. He's not quite as well known as maybe some others, but Flavel wrote a book on anxiety, on fear in the Christian life. And in that book, he gives a set of recommendations. Here's how you can deal with the anxiety, the trauma that you're struggling with. And his number one suggestion for the believer who's dealing with anxiety is, he says, study the covenant of grace. Study the covenant of grace. In other words, Apply yourself to the promises of God. Here's what he wrote. Listen, more than a bare promise, more than just a promise, in the covenant, God has graciously considered our fears, doubts, and weaknesses. Therefore, he confirms by oath and seal. He places himself under the most solemn ties to his people so that we might take comfort. He, he gives himself to us for the very reason that he knows we are really fragile. He knows we are really weak. He knows we're dust. He knows we're anxious. He knows we're scared. He knows that we have a very hard time. You have a very hard time, as I talk to you, relating to him. Because he doesn't change and we're always changing. Because he's holy and we're not holy. And so we always doubt whether he loves us. We always doubt whether, you know, he's about to come after us. And God's response to that is to say, I don't have to do this. But because I love you, I'm going to make promises to you. So that now you have a right to make claims upon me. Do you see how that works? You can make demands of God. And people do it in scripture. 
based on the promises that he's given. That's what covenant does for you. It settles the relationship. It puts you in a place of security. It defines it. And that's really where I would want us as a congregation, it's where I, as a Christian, am trying to grow into, where when we are in anxiety, when we are troubled, we more and more define our relationship with God in the terms of the covenant of promises and not in the terms of how I'm doing today emotionally. Many of us were taught in some context that the, the, the high moment of your salvation, right, was that missions trip you went on. Or that day you asked Jesus into your life. And sadly, what a lot of Christians are doing is when they're struggling, they go back to those early moments when they were just infants and maybe they first acknowledged Christ. And they try to think, well, I had that experience and therefore I'm okay. But the older you get, you realize experience is misleading. And you start looking back to what you did that day and you go, did I really know what I was doing? Was that really real? And what are you, you're left in confusion and doubt. That's not what God has for us. We're not to be grounded in our ask Jesus into our heart moments. We're to be grounded in the promises of God. When we're doubting, we're meant to go to scripture and said, it says here that Jesus will not turn away any who comes to him. It says here, I will never leave you or forsake you. And so I have something so much more solid to hold on to when my life is falling apart than just some emotional experience I had back on the mission field one week when I went with my church on a mission trip or because I was at Christian camp and I put my stick in the fire and I said a prayer. We're pretty fleeting. Those things are, are lovely in and of themselves, but we're not meant to find our strength there. And David never talks like that. You never find the scripture saying, I'm at peace because I've had great experiences with God. David always says things like this. I'm looking to you because you're mine and I'm yours because I'm bought by blood and I'm in covenant with you. So that's the first great anchor. And it's probably the greatest anchor in all of scripture is to go to the covenant, the defined grace-born relationship that you have with God. Here's a second anchor. It's another wonderful one. And again, this chapter is a, a treasure trove of anchors. But the second great one is providence. Providence. Look at verses 5 and 6. Remember, he's in distress, but he thinks back and he says, The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen me, to me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a pleasant or beautiful inheritance. Now, David is saying it's a cluster of ideas here, some really remarkably profound things in these verses. First, he says, the Lord is my chosen portion or my chosen heritage. This is language in Hebrew. It's language from the days of old. And, and David knows this because he's written out. Remember, he's written the Old Testament out for himself by hand. He knows the Old Testament far better than any of us can imagine. He knows he's using language from his Bible. This is the language of when God divided the land, the promised land, out to the people. That's the language here. And the priests, the Levites, they were the only people in Israel who God said to them, you're not going to have land like everybody else. And he said to the Levites, the priests, I'm going to be your chosen portion. I'm going to be your heritage. Now, how did they, the, the, the other tribes took care of them, so they had food and so forth, but they never had a land in the way that 
others did. They had to look to the Lord to be their heritage. Now, see how remarkable this is. David is technically not a priest. Technically, as king, all the land is his, right? He's got vineyards. He's reached a point in his life where he's got a lot of stuff. But here in a moment of worship, he's saying, I take to myself the identity of the priests, of the Levites. Take the land, take the throne, all that stuff. Give me the Lord for my portion. If I get the Lord with those things, great. But don't give me anything less than the Lord as my portion. And all through the Psalms, he talks about this. Psalm 73, my flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and, he says, my portion forever. The Holy Land may not always be under my direct control, but I have an eternal portion from the Lord. He tells us exactly what he's thinking, really, about this. At the end of the psalm in verse 11, You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. He has a portion, a lot, an inheritance, and it's the lot of the priest, just as it is for us that we receive. And that portion is the best portion because it's not just a parcel of land. It's eternity, and it's God himself. God is also, he says here in these, again, these close little verses, he's also my cup. He says, God is my cup. In the Bible, the cup is often your destiny, what's going to be given to you, what you're going to experience. So Jesus talks about right before going to the cross, not wanting to drink this cup. Or when we write or read or speak Psalm 23, we talk about being having a table prepared for us in the presence of our enemies. We say, you anoint my head with oil and my cup runs over. In other words, my portion, what you've planned for me, my destiny, what you're giving me, it runs over. And because of Christ, of course, we don't drink the cup of wrath. That's what Gethsemane is about. But rather we drink the cup of joy. And as we remind you often, we do the Lord's Supper as we did this morning we were, we're, whenever we do the Lord's Supper, we're in the middle of the Passover service and we stop right before the fourth cup, which is the cup of glory. And Jesus says, I won't drink the wine again until I drink it with you anew in the kingdom of heaven. And we'll come to that final wedding feast and we'll drink this cup. That's the cup David is here aware of, the joy of what God has planned for him, what God is already giving him, it's running over, and what God has for him. And then he says, you hold my lot. The Lord is my chosen portion. He's my cup. And you hold my lot. You know, when you're given land, especially in the Middle East, right? You have to be able to hold that land. It's not enough to be given it. You have to have a way, the strength to hold on to it, to fight for it. And David here is confessing that God is the one who not only gives him his inheritance but defends that inheritance for him. And then he ends by saying words I'm sure are familiar to many of you. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. I have a great or lovely or beautiful inheritance. The picture here again, this is the anchor of providence. That what I've been given, what I will be given, what's coming to me now, what I'm promised in the future is lovely and planned by God. 
Knowing God's providence is one of the greatest gifts of being a Christian this evening. For those in our community and our family and in our circles who do not know Christ, uh, they take providence and they replace it with something. And the thing they replace it with is chance. They believe that the cancer they just got, the lovely person in their life who just died, the job that they just lost, they believe all that happens by chance. And at first that sounds kind of comforting because when we lose things, we have to struggle with God. Why did you let this happen? And that sounds really hard and difficult, and it is, and we go through those things. But think how much worse it is to live according to chance. When all these things happen to you and there's no rhyme or reason, it means nothing. You just got the short straw and you just have to suffer without meaning or without purpose. One of the great joys, one of the great anchors of the soul in anxiety and in trouble is to know that what we have and what we will have in the future has been given to us in God's providence. Jesus himself understood this. He understood the power of providence. And we should imagine these words in his mouth because author of Hebrews tells us for the joy set before him, the inheritance set before him, he endured the cross. He knew what his father had given him and he knew what his father was giving him. And he was secretly nourished in his anxiety and his very natural troubled heart by thoughts of God's providence. So God's covenant, a defined promise-based relationship God's providence, the lot, the lines have fallen to us. Third, God's presence. God has entered into this unbreakable covenant with us. He then orders our life by providence. But then he arranges his covenant and executes his covenant from up close. He's near to us. In all of this, look at verses 7 and 8 and listen to the way David explains this nearness. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also, my heart instructs me. I've set the Lord always before me. Because he's at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. God does not operate in our lives. I know we often feel this way, but he does not operate in our lives at a safe distance. He's not detached from what's happening. He doesn't just enter into covenant formally with us and then go back to heaven sort of and say, okay, you know, I've given you what you need, work it out, live it out. Nor is he a force, a mindless presence in the world, nor is he the man upstairs who, you know, if you yell loud enough, maybe you can occasionally get his attention. No, he, he exercises his role as husband in the covenant from the position of our right hand. He is at my right hand, David says. I know for us as modern people that doesn't maybe mean as much, but in David's culture, that means he is my best friend. It means he is my advocate. It means he's my lawyer. In their culture, the person at the right hand is the person whose job it is to defend you, to argue for you, to help you, to advocate for you, to love you. It's the place of your friend and your ally. And David is saying in all of this, as God rules over me through his covenant, he rules over me through his providence, all the while he's doing it right by my side. He's giving me counsel in the night, right? That's something only a friend can do. 
And you've had that experience if you have a Christian of laying in bed at night and the Lord ministering to you in secret ways. Um, he, he gives counsel from this position of the right hand. And I think David also gives here a little sense of how this happens in his life. The language he uses here in 7 and 8 is the language of the word and prayer. We think about the way God is near to us. How do we, you say, I, I want this experience. I want to feel that God is near to me. How do I get that? Do I, do I go up on the mountaintop? Do I uh, jump up and down and try and get real excited? How do I have this? Well, the language here in 7 and 8 is, is very much the language used throughout the Psalms for meditation upon the word of God and for prayer. So, for example, listen to some of these verses and it'll help bring it out for you. Psalm 1, and, Psalm 1 verse 2. His delight, speaking of the godly man, is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. So when, so when David says, at night I'm getting counsel from the Lord, he may be talking about just those secret ways the Lord sort of bestows his wisdom to us, uh, even in the evening hours. But I think it's more likely he's talking about, he, he's ruminating over the law of God, the word of God. Psalm 119, your testimonies are my delight. They are my counselors. There's that same Hebrew word. I'm getting counsel from your word. Your word is a lamp, another passage, a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. I've chosen the way of faithfulness. I set your rules before me. So as David reads and he prays and he meditates through those means of grace, he becomes aware that God, his covenant partner, is in the room with him that God was present with him. Night was often in those days, especially a time of reading, a time away from the busyness of, of, of life and the many tasks of being a king. And it's here in these moments that David feels very strongly through the word and prayer, the presence of God. And then through that presence, he receives calm, confidence that he needs for what's about to happen tomorrow and the next day and the day after that. And so we can say, because of this, because you're a covenant partner who is close, I will not be shaken. I will not fear, he writes in Psalm 46, though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea. This is not just because of covenant, not just because of providence, but because those things are being done close up. As Christians, of course, we can say these things and we can say them with even more clarity because we live on this side of the cross. We know that there is one who is walking with us in the furnace of life. We mentioned him this morning, but Samuel Rutherford, uh, who is very much... I would say the most important influence in my spiritual life outside of my mother who taught me the gospel, but second only to her, uh, one of his prayers that you find so often in his letters is, is he's writing members of his congregation and he's saying, do you know that there's one in the furnace walking with you and his appearance is like on the son of man? And he prays this constantly, writes this constantly. And what he's telling his parishioners, right, and sometimes we can see it from the outside better than the person going through the trial. You are not alone in that furnace. Just like the three friends in Daniel's day, 
that the wicked king looks in and says, there is a, how many people we throw in there? Three, right? Who is this fourth who is in the furnace with his people? It's the Lord Jesus Christ. And God has promised this to us. And so we have great hope because the covenant and the providence with which he is caring for us is being given up close and in person. Jesus has promised this maybe nowhere more clearly than when he promised us the helper, the Holy Spirit, he said, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to remembrance all that I've said to you. Jesus as at our right hand through the Holy Spirit. Through the Holy Spirit, he is in the furnace of our distress. And when we meditate on his word and when we pray, that's when we feel it. And that's when we know it. And that's when we're reminded of the covenant. And this is an anchor, one of the only anchors that will get you through the really, really hard stuff. Covenant, providence, presence, and lastly, pleasure. And this might surprise us a little, but this is David's final anchor. It is the promise of real pleasure, real life, real joy, real times together and with him for all eternity. Look at verses 10 and 11. You will not abandon my soul to Sheol. Pause right there. You will not abandon my life to, you can insert, meaninglessness. If you die and you just become worm food and you never see anyone you love again, then pleasure dies with you. And that's how most of our friends and neighbors are living, right? YOLO, you only live once. Get all the pleasure you can now, right? Because you're going to die and you're going to be worm food and there will never be any more pleasure. And it's, what's funny is they think we're killjoys, but their story has almost no real pleasure in it. And what pleasure it does have doesn't last very long because you either get too old to enjoy it or you die and then it's all over and there's no more. But David here roots himself in the faith that pleasure will return, real joy. So he says, you will not abandon my soul to the grave, to meaninglessness, to death, to nothingness. You will not let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Is there anything better when we're going through hard times than to stop and consider the joy that God has planned for us. The scriptures say that our minds today are not capable, are simply not capable of imagining what God has planned for us. We can't take it in. If he started to explain it to us, we would lose ourselves. So he gives us images and he gives us pictures. He gives us verses like this. And he assures us that joy unspeakable Joy beyond our wildest imagination awaits us. And that makes the trauma, the misery, the suffering of this life a lot easier to bear. That is an anchor that will hold. God will not just be his covenant partner for a few decades, a few years, but God will forever be at his right hand at his side, and there will be joys forevermore. As David writes this, we have to ask ourselves a question. 
Was this psalm before his vision or after his vision? In Psalm 110, the most important Old Testament passage, for it's the most quoted in the New Testament. So from the perspective of the apostles, the most important for them. In Psalm 110, David is caught up in a vision of heaven. He's taken up into heaven. And he says, the Lord said to my other Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstools. And he sees his descendant already existing and having eternal glory. If that vision has already taken place, and even if it hasn't, understand the significance of what he writes there. When he says to Yahweh the Father, at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. It's just another way of saying in Christ, everything I could ever hope for, everything I could ever want, and more than I could ever hope for is held out to me through the covenant, through your providence, through your love. And this is an anchor that holds. This is an anchor that holds in the hardest of times. There are so many wonderful um, people who've written about Psalm 16. It's one of the great Psalms, I think, that comes to our mind. And each person finds something different to emphasize. And I, I hope tonight, even as I've gone through that, one of these four maybe has stood out to you a little bit more than the other. And I would encourage you to jump on that and use that this week. Meditate on the anchor. Don't, you know, don't discard the other three. But the Lord is probably laying on your heart as I'm talking, one of these above the others. And there's a reason for that. And I would encourage you to put your heart on that. I love the way uh, one pastor summed up this psalm, and I'll close with this. Uh, it's a devotional thought, but it's a, it's a great one. He wrote this. If God, if God is our greatest good, we get, we have what can't be lost and will only increase infinitely. Someday we will not just sense him at our right hand or at our side, but we'll see him face to face in the person of his son. In our resurrected bodies, that will be endless, unimaginable pleasure. Now, now, we have nothing to fear. Let's pray. Father, only you tonight know the fears and the hardships that we are going to face this week, this month, this year, and the years to come. And so we thank you and praise you that in light of that, you have given to us these four great anchors of your word. Now apply them to our hearts and cause each person uh, to think upon them and to rely upon them in the storms of life. So that rather being, than being torn apart with anxiety and sorrow and misery and doubt, we instead might stand fast in the joy of our salvation. Help us to stand. Help us to stand in the joy of what you are for us, especially in the person of your son. For we ask it in his name. Amen.